Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is my panelist, Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. And our special guest today is Gwendolyn Faraday. Hi, Gwen. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing all right. I'm kind of confused. I'm in Portland as well, and it's actually some nice weather. Are you talking about Portland, Oregon or Portland, Maine? Oregon. Oregon? Okay. Where are you located? Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Okay. How's the weather there so far? It's starting to get really hot out. It warms up pretty fast here from really cold to really hot in the summer. Got it. I have still not made it to Indianapolis, so I will try to do that in the future. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. The call for proposals is open until March 31st. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. jsremoteconf.com. We have brought you here to talk about Vue, obviously. And to start, you seem to show some interest in Vue component libraries. How about we start there? Okay. So just to take it off for those who are still getting used to Vue as as a framework, what is a component library? A component library is basically a combination of JavaScript functionality, HTML markup, and CSS all bundled into these nice little Vue components that you can just import and use in your application. Things like navigation components, buttons, forms, all of the normal stuff that you would use in your application. And most component libraries have up to maybe 30 to 80 of these components. Okay, so it's so it's a number of components. You said navigation, for example. Yeah. Um, and I just need to import them like a normal component that I built and just use them? Yeah, basically. You import it into your view component, you register it as a component, and then you put it in your template. Okay. So, for example, I was when I started with web development, I started with HTML and CSS, and I learned about Bootstrap. Does this compare with something like Bootstrap, or is this something a little more advanced? It's definitely comparable with Bootstrap. There is also a view Bootstrap component library. So Bootstrap was CSS and JavaScript that you would import and you would use it in your front-end application to style and design and lay it out. So it's the same kind of concept with component libraries. It's just there are more things abstracted away from you, I'd say. And you just import it into your single-page application framework like Vue, and then you put it in your template And there are a number of props, events, and slots that you can use to update and kind of customize each component and then render it. It renders out as HTML, CSS, JavaScript in your application. So instead of with Bootstrap where it brings in jQuery, it's just all straight in view. So I can just bring in a single component, let's say a navigation, and then... I would assume there's documentation for most of them to explain how I would add in different links to my pages or if I wanted to change the style on them. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So why would I want to use a component library like this if it's just a standard view component that I could build myself? Yeah. So 
it abstracts away a lot of setup. I mean, you could build everything by yourself from scratch. You could, you know, use vanilla JavaScript and not use anything. It just makes it a lot easier because we're using these components over and over again. We're always using buttons, uh, navigation elements, forms, menus, all of this stuff across all of our applications. So there's no reason to build it over and over again. And also a lot of times or in every application, we have to think about so many different pieces like accessibility, usability, different elements like white space and layout and breakpoints. There's just so many things that go into building a front-end application. Component libraries, are most of them are really well-designed and have a lot of different contributors, and it just makes it a lot easier so you're not having to do all of this setup by yourself. So I'm doing some looking here at some of the view component libraries that are more commonly used. Uh, I'm just curious to see, do you have a few favorites that you like to use? Um, what, what component libraries come to mind when you talk about view component libraries and, and common ones that get used as far as you know? Yeah, so I actually know a lot about this right now because I'm almost done with courses on two of these. So I'd say the most popular component libraries are Vutify and Element UI, and they're both very full featured. They both have over 80 components each. The main difference between being that Vutify is material. It's based off of material design and Element has its own design system. And those are definitely two of my favorites. They have accessibility baked in so many different components, their forms and tables and layouts. Everything has been really easy to use. And most importantly, they have Vue CLI plugins for them that make it easy to get set up and get started as well. Yeah, I've been living with in Beautify for the past 11 months. So it's one I'm getting very familiar with. Uh, they do have a lot of neat stuff out of the box. I think probably one of the most complex ones that I've seen is like a combo box and all the variation that you can use for single or multiple items and it gives you the check boxes and how you display it with yeah. chips or just text or on and on and on. So yeah, that really does make some of those complex things like that a lot easier. Now, you know, obviously this takes care of a lot of the stuff out of the box, but for most people, the way something comes out of the box isn't necessarily going to be the way that fits best in, into the design and the color scheme and so much from for their particular application or web, you know, site or whatever they're building. So for all of these, what is the ease of customization and for overriding to make it fit into, into a given application? I would say for... The five or six frameworks that I have tried and liked in Vue, it's been very easy to overwrite and customize. I think that, you know, Vutify, Element, Inkline, and some of the other ones have done a really good job of organizing the SAS so that you can, basically they're using SAS variable defaults. So you can either use the default and just leave it alone, or you can overwrite it with your own SAS or also pass in your own theme to change the regular colors and styles that would be applied via the library, if that makes sense. Oh, no, it makes perfect sense. Uh, With Beautify, yeah, I know you can have just your override file and I've got various colors, you know, overridden or tweaked, you know, from from a standard template 
file. So yeah, I know at least in my experience, it's been very fairly easy to to override some of the basic stuff like that, the colors and so on. Now, what about when we start talking about speed and efficiency and how adding libraries like this can really add to your bundle size. And so therefore it's a little slower to load at least the first time and so on like that. Uh, Have you dealt with those issues uh, with some of these libraries that you prefer? That's one of the things I look at when I look at a library. Is it modular enough, which most UI libraries will naturally be modular so that you can just import the components that you need and not have to import the whole library. Again, Beautify does a good job where you can just import the components that you want. And if I'm working on just a small application or I'm trying something out, I'm not going to bother stripping out the components that I want. But if I'm using it for an application for a client, then I you know, go through and just import the ones that I want to make it the bundle size the most efficient. So yeah, so your good libraries will give you the chance to just import the specific pieces that you need as compared to something like, uh, I think it's like Moment, where you have to import everything just to get certain Yeah, and also these libraries, like if you look at some of the new things they're adding, like Beautify added skeleton loaders and lazy loading, and I think a couple other things, and it's just, there's a lot going on and a lot of stuff that you probably won't use except in a specific case. So there's no reason to import almost 90 components into your application when you're going to use a dozen. Yeah. I hadn't heard that term before. What's a skeleton loader? It's basically where the, it loads. You see this on social media apps and stuff. It'll load basically like gray and white boxes for everything. So it looks like it's loading the page. Oh, okay. I just hadn't heard the term to go with it. Yeah, I don't know if I heard it before it started popping up in these libraries. Yeah, so it's basically just a way to show the user, hey, you know, we're not going to give you the white screen of death. There really is stuff coming. It's just taking a little while to load. So here's a placeholder while that's loading, sort of keep their attention. Yeah. So so how is, I guess I'm a little confused. How is that different or needed as compared to the way things work with standard asynchronous calls? Like uh, in my apps, and you know, this one where I'm using Beautify, uh, because I'm using asynchronous API calls to get my data, um, I'll pardon my phone. There is a, um, I mean, the, the framework will load my fields, my load, my header and all that stuff. And then my data will pop in once it's loaded. So how does that work differently? I mean, it's just basically you're loading in empty boxes that have some like circles and ovals and squares in them to make it look like it's content without any text or images or anything. Okay, yeah, I'm looking at the the page. Yeah, it's basically just another way to give the user an indication that something is actually happening and, you know, give you a few more seconds or milliseconds to load the page. In the case of the skeleton loader, are these customizable in Beautify so that you can make it look more like what your application would look like? Or are they just boilerplate? So this is still in beta, so I think they're adding more features, but you can... They have quite a few things, different styles like horizontal and vertical styles that you can add. Um, I only tried this out briefly, but it seemed like I could customize it to look like a shadow of my page, I guess. Awesome. Since we're talking about Beautify, are there any other components that really attract you to this component library instead of something like Element? Because I know they're, they're pretty similar as far as what they're trying to achieve, but I, they also come at it from a different angle. Yeah, I would say 
Beautify has a few more, I guess, already pre-built elements like page footers and stuff that you can that are just ready to put in your page. The one reason why I've used Element in the past is because the tables are so robust and I had a really complex table that I had to build for a client and Element just has so many options for tables and they have a lot of niche features in some of their components. But yeah, I like both frameworks a lot. I've I've had some experience in the past with Element and my last job I used it primarily for its date and time pickers and it was really simple to work with and manipulate the data that came in and out of them. I really like that. It is really robust. I think what scares some people away from it or people that I've talked to is because the docs appear to be Chinese translation. So some of the English is quasi-English, but I really haven't had a problem with it being in very, very slightly broken English. Yeah, I think I ran into that a bit, but that was in 2018. So I'm, I'm sure it's improved since then. One of the things yeah. I like about Element is it merged well with Bootstrap because I had, a, I had been working on a primarily Bootstrap application and I was able to migrate fairly seamlessly from Bootstrap form inputs to Element form inputs. They looked pretty similar out of the box. Yeah. So there's another framework that I would really like to be present in Vue.js in the ecosystem. Have you heard of Foundation? Yes. Yes. It was real popular. I guess it still is really popular, like the kind of not opponent, but like an alternative to Bootstrap. There really isn't a full-featured Foundation library for Vue right now, which is kind of disappointing and surprising. They have some of the components ported over to Vue, but not all of them. The Vue Foundation library doesn't have a lot of, I guess, community support and people updating it. So that's something I'd really like to work on, turning that into a Vue CLI app and you know, adding the rest of the components into that. I think that would be an exciting addition to Vue components. What is it about Foundation that you like? I've always liked the accessibility is at the forefront of how Foundation builds things. Their documentation has always been really good. I just really personally like their styles and designs. I've always liked it a bit better than Bootstrap and Material and some of the other things out there. And then, of course, for emails, I'm not sure if I would use this in Vue.js, but they have really good email templates, too, that you can write with Foundation. One of the most popular pairings for Vue on the front end is Laravel or PHP on the back end. If you're setting up and running a PHP app, then why hassle with all the back end config? Instead, count on Cloudways. Cloudways provides a solution that will have you up and running quickly. They offer exceptional performance and reliability and 24-7 support. So your website or your web app, which is probably crucial to your business, will run in an environment designed for it. Go run it on Cloudways. If you use the code DEVCHAT, you'll get 30% off for three months. Here's an interesting question regarding these component libraries. Obviously, the idea is that you know they handle a lot of the design, look and feel, and to a large extent, your responsiveness as well. That's sort of contained in the components that handle how the theme adapts to different screen sizes. With the additions to core CSS and HTML, in particular stuff like CFSS Flexbox, CSS Grid, CSS Variables, and so on, 
do some of those core CSS things replace some of the functionality that we've been getting out of these component libraries for a long time? And, uh, and the reason I ask this is, you know, I've got a site that I've been working on on my own where I did it completely from scratch with Grid and Flexbox and some little bit of theming. And I was able to handle the responsive portions of it, you know, my look and feel and all that without having to import uh, something separate and just did it in Nuxt. So how do you see those two things, I guess, in comparison with all the new stuff being added to core CSS? A lot of the frameworks are using these new core CSS elements like CSS grids and Flexbox and those kind of things under the hood. And I think that the frameworks provide so much more than just some CSS, like they abstract away a lot of things. Like if you're using a Beautify menu, for example, it's resizing your icon, setting your hover state. It's doing so many things for you. And all you have to do is stick the component in your application and set a few props and then it's ready to use. So yeah, CSS has come a long way, but uh, the component libraries do a lot of things for you. So in other words, they're all using the core CSF. They, they're not having to add a whole bunch of JavaScript to do stuff because they're just using the core CSS under their, their feature set, correct? Yeah. Okay. And I think at least from, from my standpoint, where that comes from is I know for, for instance, for a long time, Bootstrap, you had to load all of jQuery. You know, Bootstrap could not function without jQuery. Yeah. Um, underlying it, which is, you know, that's more code to add to your bundle, which increases, you know, downloads and so on and so forth. So that's what I wanted to get at is that these libraries can use underlying core CSS features without a whole bunch of extra JavaScript and then just add layers on top of that stuff. Yeah. And that's another interesting thing that I don't know. I wonder if, because I know that these libraries work in older browsers as well. So they're going to come with polyfills. So I wonder if you can set it to where you're not going to support older browsers or you can set which browsers you're going to support and then somehow get or tree shake the polyfills or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure some of that's handled by like Webpack or some of the tools, the tooling underneath that can do that. I don't know the details myself, but yeah, I know that there's always a big push to make things as light and efficient as possible from a from a bundle size standpoint. Yeah. I know that one of our uh, other panelists, Austin Gill, put out a question on Twitter uh, a while back asking, should library authors include the polyfills or not themselves, or should they document that a polyfill may be required and leave it up to the app developers. So I think it's definitely an ongoing question how to best handle that. Before we move on, is there anything else you would like to talk about with Vue component libraries? I'd just like to mention that I'm working with scrimba.com and we're going to launch a couple free Vue.js component courses. If you haven't used Scrimba, it's, it's an interactive video. It's really interesting because the user can type into the video screen, basically. So it's a screen recording that the user can interact with. Well, that sounds my bra- cool. My brain is trying to wrap around that. I don't, I don't quite. <laughs> yeah. So what happens cool. when you type in? So what, what happens to that? Te- are, you actually, are you saying you're actually editing the code in the video? Or how's, what exactly is the typing, the user entered content being used for? So I'm recording videos basically in their interface and I'm using view single file components and just typing out 
view JavaScript and HTML the same way that I would normally. And then I record what I'm doing. And then the user will play the recording, listen to my voice. They can pause it anywhere and they can edit the code in my screen, which is awesome. It's just like interactive video. That's really cool. So it feels a lot more like pair programming too. Like like you were just there to coach them along and explain to them what they're doing and why they need to do it, right? Yeah, almost, except I can't, I'm not live, so I can't answer well, yeah. anything or actually talk to them. Yeah, next, but it's, next it's a very cool idea. Awesome. In addition to these courses, I think you mentioned at the, before we started the show that you were doing other courses or presentations about Vue Online. Uh, do you want to talk about any of that? Yeah, I've been working on a couple different Vue projects, but most of my time right now is spent working on some courses around Vue component libraries. And I'm also putting some content together. Like I mentioned, Foundation earlier, I've been looking into how to make a Vue CLI plugin. So I was thinking that would be a great video to make around how a Vue CLI plugin is made and how to interface with that, I guess. Oh, speaking for myself, that would be fantastic. I remember when those first came out, I was looking around for ways to do it and couldn't find many examples for a CLI plugin. So yes, you got my vote right there. <laughs> awesome. Well, that sounds good. You said earlier as well that you were doing some streaming on YouTube. Uh, what have you been doing there? Yeah, I have a channel called Faraday Academy. It used to be called Coding with Gwen, but I wanted to make it sound a little bit more formal. So my last name is Faraday and my homeschool Basically, my homeschool school was called Faraday Academy, so I stole the name because that's my last name, and I thought it sounds kind of good in technology. So I've been making various programming videos on there, and then I started live streaming, I think it was about three months ago now, and I did 18 or 19 live streams building out this full stack view application, and then I've done another 10 on the latest application I've been building, which is an interactive tutorial on teaching regex. It's um, built in Vue.js and Vue.defy, and that's been really fun and really challenging. It's, it's based off of CSS Sushi and SQL Bolt, if you've played those before. I, I don't know that. if it's really playing. It's kind of an interactive interface where you learn CSS or the other one is SQL. You learn SQL queries. So if you, if you haven't used it before, the premise is that all the information should be on the screen and take you through challenges that build step-by-step step off of each other. Ideally, the user's hands wouldn't have to leave the keyboard. They could just type out solutions and hit enter. It would take them to the next challenge. Yeah, that sounds really great. So you mentioned that you're using your YouTube channel. And I know when I listen to other JavaScript developers, other developers, a lot of times they'll use Twitch, which started out as a gaming, you know, game streaming platform and a lot of coders have used. So I'm just curious to understand why, what do you prefer about YouTube over Twitch? I wouldn't say there's anything I prefer on YouTube. It's just that I already have a following on YouTube. I just passed 2,200 subscribers. So on Twitch, I'd be starting at zero. And on YouTube, I already have a channel built. So it was just easier. Also, I thought about streaming to both at once. And I use live stream software called Ecamm Live just because OBS was, it was a lot for me to set up and I just couldn't get it working correctly. 
if you want to stream to two or more platforms at the same time, like Twitch, Facebook Live, YouTube, then I have to have an additional piece of software, which is more expensive, and then I have to learn how to use it. So I thought, until I'm really serious about this, YouTube is a great platform now. The chat features, everything seems to work really well. Cool. So how many people, have you noticed how many people you'll generally have online when you're streaming at uh, a given point in time? Sometimes there's only a couple people in the stream. Sometimes there's 10 or 12. One time, for some reason, I had a lot of people. I think it was like 49 people, which was an anomaly. But yeah, as long as there's, I think eight or 10 people is good enough to get a chat going. And now I've noticed I have some regulars who try to make it to every stream. And it's been really fun kind of getting to know them, getting to chat with them. And then I kind of miss them when they don't come in a stream. So how do you, do you do them at a re- like a regular time every week so that everybody knows this is what it's doing? Or do you like put out on Twitter or something when you're going to do it? Or how does that work? So every Sunday I do it at 11 a.m. Eastern time. But other than that, I'll do it whenever I have availability throughout the week. Like I'm doing one tomorrow at 1 p.m. But I try to let people know at least a day or two in advance and then post it on my channel so they can see there's an upcoming stream. And that way it's all set up for me too, because then I just have to click the go live button instead of having to remember all the different steps of setting it up before I go on. So what kind of things do you stream? For instance, do you have like a large application that you're building and you just sort of do it step by step? Or do you come in with the topic says, well, here's today I want to demonstrate, you know, how to use a child component with props or something like that. What's your, uh, or do you even have like a set type of thing that you like to do? So right now it's just me building stuff. I would like to do some demo streams because it's a little bit difficult building a whole application over the course of a dozen or two dozen streams. There are a lot of people who will hop in who haven't seen the beginning of the application. So are they going to go back and watch, you know, 14 or 15 hours of streams or more to get caught up? Usually not. So I, I would like to do more streams that are just one session, maybe an hour, two or three long. And then that's the whole demo. Do you put your final projects out like on GitHub or something so people can go in and take it from there and extend it? Yeah. So I put them on GitHub. I tell people they can do whatever they want with them. I would love if people, and a couple of people have made comments or sent me emails, I guess, if they were too shy to comment about bugs or some advice or ideas that they had about that. So yeah, I would love if people contributed to it, especially projects like this regex one I'm building. It's basically something that I want to exist. I want more of these interactive educational tools to exist. And I think it would be great if I could host this on GitHub pages and people could actually use it as a learning tool. So yeah, I would love if people came and contributed to stuff like that. I'm curious, uh, since I haven't watched too many live streams of programming, how do you feel about needing to Google something in the middle of a stream? Is that something that ever comes up? Yeah, it definitely comes up. You know, at first I thought it was real awkward because I felt like people were watching me do stuff. And I think the first couple of times I actually Googled off screen just because I felt so weird about it. But then when I looked back at it, I was like, this looks even more weird. So then I started doing it on stream and it's just totally normal. Like every coder understands you have to look stuff up and do research. 
And what's awesome about live streaming is that there are people in the chat who will give you, I guess, tips or advice because it's hard to think out loud and like narrate your coding session. It's a little awkward at first. The people in the chat will say, hey, you should try this. And then it gives you another idea, which is really great. It's a lot of fun. I like that. Yeah, yeah, you get people doing your helping you doing your work for you. That, that uh, yeah. picks things up quickly. That would be nice. It is nice. I love it. It also makes me get it done because I'm like, oh, I this is an open source thing I want to work on, and I already have scheduled live streams, so you know I have to go work on it. So when you're when you're live streaming, are you just talking about okay, this is what I'm going to do, or do you say okay, this is the feature I want to do in view, and I think I'm going to do it this way. Does anybody have any ideas? And people chip in. You get that kind of input as well? Yeah, sometimes I say, like I go into a stream having no idea how to do something, and then I'm hoping people start commenting and giving me some ideas. Otherwise, I'm just going to talk it out and you know feel like I'm talking to myself for a while while I'm figuring it out. So sort of a rubber ducking it, as I say? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so I have a rubber duck that I abuse regularly in that way, <laughs> explaining things to myself. And oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, it works. Well, awesome. Are there any other topics that you would like to cover today? I think that's it for me. Cool. Thank you so much for being on the episode today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. I think at this point, let's move on to picks. Steve, would you like to start us off with picks? Sure. I'll, uh, I'm, shall we say, much different than the two of you because I've seen your pictures, Gwen. Shall we say follically challenged and uh, <laughs> have the, the smooth head? So uh, I actually got this gift for my wife for my birthday recently, and it's called the Pitbull Gold Pro Head and Face Shaver. Really cool for those of us that have to shave the top and the face. I like it because it's got like different blades for shaver heads for head and face, and it works really well for getting it done when you gotta when you want to when you abide by the motto that I do that smoother is better. <laughs> oh. So not not really incredibly expensive as compared to some of the other electric shavers I've bought, but uh, from what I've seen, definitely well worth it. Very cool. Thank you, Gwen. Do you have any picks for us today? Yeah, I've been kind of binging on Isaac Asimov books. If you don't know who he is, he's a prolific sci-fi writer who wrote iRobot, the Foundation series, and a whole bunch of other stuff. They're just all so good. So I think I've read maybe a dozen long sci-fi books in the last couple months. So if you like sci-fi, I highly recommend checking out his robot series and Foundation series. Yeah, he's been... he's pretty much one of the first sci-fi authors, isn't he? I mean, sort of considered that way. Yeah, it's incredible that he was writing about basically AI robots from, I think, the 30s on. Wow, he's been writing that long. I didn't realize he'd been that long. Yeah, and then I think his last book was around 81 or 82 or something. 
Maybe uh, a little bit later. Yeah, you know, it looks like you had some foundation, Foundation's Edge, Foundation and Earth in 82 and 86. Yeah. So which books have you liked the best or which ones you've been reading lately? Oh, they're all so good. The Foundation Trilogy, of course, is a classic. And then Prelude to Foundation, which he wrote after, might be my favorite book. It was really well done for a book that was written 20 or 30 years after the series. But my favorite book of his is actually a collection of short stories called Nine Tomorrows, which is, yeah, basically like nine futuristic scenarios in short story format that are really good. Yeah, looking at his bibliography, he's got like just straight science books that he's written, look like textbooks almost. Yeah, he was a physicist too. Yeah, I think probably the best one I think the most people would know would be iRobot because that was, I think Spielberg made that into a movie. Yeah. Um, at one point. Sounds right, yeah. Yeah, that's why everyone knows that one. He's the one that created the uh, the the laws of artificial intelligence, right? About how it needs to help humanity and not do harm or something like the that. The three laws of robotics, yeah. Those, yeah. Awesome. I have two picks today. I'll follow in the science fiction. I was reminded of this book while you were talking. Uh, while I was thinking about what I've read in sci-fi recently. It's a novel called Delta V by Daniel Suarez. It follows a cave diver who gets recruited to join a private space agency, essentially, that is planning on mining an asteroid. And so it's all about him going through his training and the eventual mission to the asteroid. And it tries to follow the the science of what that would be like and look at the ramifications of such a mission from an Earth perspective and what potentially would drive a company to do that. And just what happens to the individuals in that environment who are out in the middle of space, uh, cut off from everybody. That sounds interesting. That is Delta V. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes for that. And the other, this one's a little more out of left field, but I like to write fiction. If you go on my website, you'll see some of my examples of that. It's not necessarily the best, but I enjoy it. <laughs> uh, and one of the things I like to do with my, my fantasy writing is create the map to go with it. And there's a website that I've referenced to kind of get an idea for that. And it's called the Cartographer's Guild. It's just a group of enthusiasts over cartography who will go on there, talk about how they make their own maps, share some of their examples. You can commission a map to be made if you want to. Uh, there's a whole bunch of great resources on that website. So that's the cartographersguild.com. Or sorry, not the Cartographer's Guild, just cartographersguild.com. So that is that. And what's your website where we can see all your writing, Lindsay? My website is lindsaykwardell.com. It is built in Gridsome and it is open source. So if anybody wants to go onto my GitHub and take a look at that, at the code, you are more than welcome. Awesome. I love Gridsome. It's been great. Had a podcast episode about it. Uh, as of this time of recording, came out a couple episodes ago. I believe it was episode 98. Yeah. Well, great. If that's it, let's wrap it up. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Views on View. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us either on Twitter at Views on View or on our website, viewsonview.com or devchat.tv. Hope you all have a good day. See you next time. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. <laughs>